Let me pray now as we come to God's word together. Father, we thank you for what you have to say to us from 1 Peter 2 this morning. Give us hearts that are soft to hear and ready to learn. Amen. Inbuilt to human psychology, I think, is the, the desire to know whether things are getting better or worse. Is society, are we progressing or are we in a state of decline? It's written all over the news at the moment, from Liz Truss's new government to the NHS, from the new king and the monarchy to the recently completed inquest into um, the social media influence death of Molly Russell. And in fact, I think the answer that um, for most of us, most of the answers to those things is negative. Um, it says quite a lot about where we're at as a society. But I think we like to ask, are things getting better or worse? Are we progressing? as a society, or are we in a state of decline? And I think we ask the same questions of ourselves. Am I moving forwards in my career, or am I stalling? Are my children becoming more resilient, or only more riotous? Is my eyesight improving, my cholesterol going down again, or is the damage permanent? Will I pass the next exam in flying colours, scrape through, or need to do a reset? Is my bank balance, the value of my house, my pension pot, the state of my investments healthier than it was this time last year? Or is it worse? Am I progressing? Or am I in decline? Are things better now than they were this time last year, 10 years ago, 30 years ago? Or were they worse? Are we asking about the world? We ask it about ourselves. And I think we also like to make this judgment about the church. Uh, the church local, the little group of uh, 80 or so of us sat here now. And the church national and international, whatever branch we uh, feel that we're part of. How's the church doing? Is it progressing? Or is it in a state of decline? Is it get, getting better? Or is it getting worse? And I wonder how you would answer that question for the church. What statistics would you pull in? What, what evidence? What grade would you give this little church, Magdalene Road Church, on its report card? Could be better. Should be doing more of this. Seems to have lost sight of that. Needs to give some serious thought to this. Not what it was in, in the glory days, uh, pre-COVID, back when we used to meet at St. Mary and St. John. What about the church in Oxford, the national church, evangelical church, Protestant church, independent, FIEC, however we slice the cake? Do we feel that the national church is doing much better? Or perhaps we'd write um, weak and struggling on the end of the year reports, uh, on the wrong side of history, fallen foul of the cultural zeitgeist, finding it hard to change filled with abusive leaders and practices, getting smaller, unable to do or do well the things it's supposed to be doing, preaching and teaching the gospel, holding on to biblical truth and doctrine, creating a community who love each other, caring for the poor and vulnerable in society. 
Well, I wouldn't pretend that there, um, that there wouldn't be truth in uh, some of those accusations were we to make them. Um, the church does often seem so weak, and its trajectory appears to be heading downwards. And our culture would certainly have us believe that the church is in a state of decline. But that is not how God sees the church. That couldn't be further from how God sees the church, as Peter shows us in our passage this morning. And these words have given a a spring to my step this week. I hope and pray that they will encourage you to. We'll consider three things as we look at them. At first, what we're becoming as the church in verses 4 and 5. Then what we're built on in verses 6 to 8. And then finally, what we are in verses 9 and 10. So first, what we're becoming, verses 4 and 5, a spiritual house. We're becoming a spiritual house. Look down with me at verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And Peter uses an image of building, verse 5. And immediately we're in a world of progress and decline. A building is either being built, standing firm, or falling into disrepair, being knocked down. And we are being built, Peter says. We are being built into something. We are being built into a spiritual house. A holy home. Two things to say. Um, And first... Peter seems to show shockingly little interest in my personal growth project. Now, you may have an allergic reaction to uh, to language like that, but I think we all kind of buy into it, unless I'm uh, in more of a minority than I think. Um, We all, when we think about our lives, tend to start the sentence with I. I want to be a better husband, a better wife, a better son, daughter, parent, friend. I'm working on being a better lawyer, a better manager, a better teacher, builder, a better saver, a better spender, healthier, smarter, stronger, funnier, godlier. I'm looking for better friends, a spouse, a child, a house, a home. We all, I think, when we think of our lives, start the sentence with I. We have our little personal growth projects on the go. But Peter sweeps all that away. Not that there's anything wrong with that we're trying to improve, but he sweeps it away because he starts with the plural. You can't build a house out of just one stone on its own. So yes, by all means, know your gifts, your character, your temperament, work out where you fit into this spiritual house. But don't make it all about you, says Peter. And in fact, don't start with you, says Peter. See that God has something far bigger in mind than any one Christian could possibly conceive of or be on their own. Peter shows shockingly little interest in my personal growth project because he has something far bigger in mind for God's people. One, a beautifully carved and perfected brick 
no matter how great it might be, sitting on, on its own, on the ground, just a brick. And God has in mind a towering edifice, a temple reaching up to heaven and spreading out across the earth, filled with his people in the plural. So Peter is not that interested in my personal growth project. Also, Peter says that I am not the builder. We are being built into a spiritual house. We are not the builders in this metaphor. We are not the architects of our self-actualization plans, or indeed of God's much better self-actualization plan. And yet we kind of like to think of ourselves as the architects, at least I do. We're sort of drawing out the designs, sketching out the great lives and works that God has planned for us. We're the engineers. God does the kind of conceptual artwork, and then we make the plans that make it a reality. We're the joiners. God does the exterior. We come in and fill it with the furniture and fittings of life. Or we're the plumbers and electricians. God makes it good on the outside. We come and look under, behind, inside, and make it actually work. Or we're the doctors. God gets the building up. We diagnose the problems and spot what's wrong. Or we're the teachers, watching on the side, telling our youngers and lessers how to get this building up and working. But we're none of those things. Who are we? We're the bricks. We're the bricks, not the builders. God is the builder. Not me, not you, not the really godly person sitting down the road. God is the builder. And we are the bricks. And that is humbling. And that is a helpful perspective changer in a city like Oxford, filled with brilliance. God is the builder. And we are the bricks. What a great relief if, as I do, you make mistakes, you mess things up. So that's to focus on the, uh, the being built bit of what Peter says. Um, let's look now at what we are being built into. Uh, verse 4 again. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by human beings, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Now this phrase, spiritual house, um, may not mean much to us. We don't really have a sort of a frame of reference for that. You know, maybe we think Westminster Abbey, St. Paul's Cathedral. But for Peter's first readers, this idea of a, of a holy home would have taken them straight to one place, to the temple. The temple that was uh, commissioned by God, longed for by David, built by Solomon, covered in bronze and gold, every part handcrafted and beautifully made, the place in which the holy God could be found by his unholy people, the temple. Maybe um, think of your, your spiritual home, the, the geographical place, or maybe the point in your past where you felt most connected to God in most uh, vibrant community with his people. I think that's the, the sort of association that the thought of a spiritual house might have had for Peter's audience. But of course, uh, Peter isn't talking about bricks and mortar here. A restoration, reinstitution of uh, Solomon's temple in all its glory. No, he has something better in mind. Something far better. For God now lives with his people. Not in a building made of bricks and mortar. Not in a physical place that you can pinpoint on a map that you have to travel to. No. God lives with his people now by living in them, 
are living in the church. Not in this building. There's nothing particularly special about this building. But in the spiritual house that he is building among his people. Because this house, it's not just being built to be an empty edifice, a building that will be used or stand empty depending on the time, the circumstances, the owner, its state of repair. It's a home. It's to be occupied. It's the place in which God will live and we live with him. And it's a home in which we live out our God-given purpose. In verse 5. A home in which we live as a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter takes us inside this holy home and he casts us as the priests, offering not lambs, bulls, goats, but our lives, our worship, spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so the church may appear, in earthly terms, to be in decline, to be falling apart, to be getting worse, not better. But let me assure you that that is far from the true spiritual reality. For God says that he is building the church, this church, into a spiritual house in which he will be glorified. So we need not fear. We need not feel our stomachs clench as we read another article in the news about a believer taking to court, getting into trouble. Or as we hear of another church being investigated for problems within. Or of another church leader stepping down in disrepute. Or when membership numbers seem to be going down rather than up. We need not fear. We might be discouraged. We might be concerned. But we need not be afraid. You don't need to fear that God's lost his grip on things, that he's out of the loop, that the church is plunging into decline and dying out, and God can't seem to stop it. While our secular journalists and our non-Christian friends may state as facts that the church is disappearing to nothing, God states as facts that he is building his church into a spiritual house. So who will we believe? our first point, what we're becoming, a spiritual house. But what is that spiritual house being built on? Our second point, we're built on Christ the cornerstone. In verses 6 to 8, we're built on Christ the cornerstone. Now, it might be tempting to take an image like verse 5, where we're all being built into a spiritual house, a sort of amorphous, lovely, soft around the edges, something upon which... Everyone can agree. You know, the, the perfect te- text, perhaps, for an ecumenical or interfaith event. But there's an edge to what Peter writes in this passage. A line that pierces like a scalpel through these verses. And which side of it you fall on makes all the difference. It will mostly be in verses 6 to 8 for this point. But uh, let's read again from verse 4, and I'll just emphasize a few words and phrases as I read. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, 
offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Might flick elsewhere, actually, for that um, interfaith event talk after all. Because it turns out that this spiritual house, this church, glorious though it is, is not just some sort of pleasant, amorphous, anything-goes community. Everyone is welcome, although that phrase comes nowhere near to communicating the extent to which God wants any and every person to be part of this community. Everyone is welcome, but there are entry requirements. And though these entry requirements are low, the cost for not meeting them is astronomically high. Some of you I know are thinking about applying to university or college in the next couple of months. A few of us are not long back from uh, dropping off offspring around the country for uh, second, third, fourth, fifth years. Uh, but if you're looking to apply for next year, uh, you'll be looking at the entry requirements, I'm sure. Three Bs, is that realistic? Two A's and a B, could I manage that? Straight A's, is that too much to hope for? What about if I did joint honours rather than single? Or if I applied for a slightly less competitive course? What's realistic? What's reasonable? What's manageable? And perhaps in the back of your mind, you know there could be some wiggle room. They might say you need two A's and a B, but they might let you scrape in if you miss that second A. And if they don't, but they're still clearing, they could take a year out and reapply next year. And entry requirements are a big deal. And the cost of not meeting them can be high. But with this spiritual house, it's a little different because the entry requirements are low. But the cost of not meeting them is astronomically high. The entry requirements are low cost for not meeting them is astronomically high. What are the entry requirements? Well, for us, it's simple. Verse 4, come to him. Verse 6, trust in him. Verse 7, believe. That's it. No uh, required grades to be achieved. No personal statement to write or CV to brush up. No professional qualifications needed. No level of experience in the field or extracurricular activities required. We come, we trust, and we believe. What could be easier? Why is the bar so low? Well, we saw it last week. It's because God has paid for our place with blood. God has already paid the extraordinary cost that our place really is worth with the precious blood of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 19. This isn't the NHS, is free at the point of use, but pay for it in your taxes. This is just free. But the cost for rejecting God's payment on your behalf, for not meeting those extraordinarily low entry requirements, not coming to him, trusting in him, believing. Well, it's there by inference. In verse 4, if you don't come to him, the living stone. In verse 5, 
if you bring a sacrifice that isn't acceptable to God because it's made in and through Jesus, then it's spelt out in verse 7. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Miss this box on the form. Fail to tick the paid-for-by-Jesus box. And the whole thing falls apart. The whole thing falls apart. Because we're being built into a spiritual house on the chosen and precious cornerstone of Jesus. Peter writes, quoting Isaiah 28, verse 16. Now, I'm no building expert, far from it. But uh, I take it that, that if you take out the cornerstone of a building, not the sort of fancy ceremonial stone a bit higher up, like we used to have in our old chapel building, but, but the cornerstone, the, the first stone, the foundation stone, the, uh, the building is going to get rather fragile. Like teeter for a while, like, like a giant Jenga. But I take it that uh, if you take out the cornerstone, the building will ultimately fall. And if you take Jesus out of this spiritual house, the church, the whole building comes crashing down. If we try to take Jesus out of the church, we will find ourselves left with nothing more than a pile of dust. So the entry requirements are low. But the cost for not meeting them is astronomically high. It is that we are left out of this glorious building, that there is no building at all, as far as we are concerned. So in light of that, let me humbly and gently ask, are you so keen to find Christian unity that you're happy to take Jesus out of the picture? Christian unity is a great aim. But are we so keen to seek it? So keen to say, look, the church is big, it's growing. Uh, look how many we are when we lay down our differences. Are you so keen to find it? But at best, you'll downplay what the Jesus of the Bible actually said and who he was. Or at worst, you'll build your unity on something else entirely. Or maybe to make your Christianity seem more palatable to unbelieving colleagues, friends, family, or simply in your own mind. You rub off a few of Jesus' awkward edges. Did Jesus really say that, you ask? Not from a starting point of trying to work out what the Bible really says, but from a starting point of trying to remove some of what you don't like, what the Bible says. Or perhaps neither of those temptations uh, is big for you. But let me ask us then, is Jesus at the centre of our Christianity? Is Jesus more important to us than our particular brand of Christianity, that we're Reformed, Evangelical, Calvinist, Charismatic, not Anglican, ex-Anglican, quasi-Anglican, whatever it may be? Is it primarily our faith in Jesus, though, that we see as binding us together? Or is it just our cultural similarity to many of us? Or the community of care, the social scene? Or simply institutional memory, we've been here so long. Is Jesus at the centre of our Christianity? Is he the cornerstone? 
and an encouragement to. If we have come to him, trusted in him and believed, if we have pinned our hopes on the Father's chosen and precious cornerstone, then we will never be put to shame. Verse 6. We will never be put to shame. If we have believed, if we are believing, then we are part of this spiritual house. We are like living stones. We are being built into this glorious new holy home. We are God's holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. What God is doing in his people, he is doing in us, if we believe. And I can assure you, for he assures us, that his church is not in decline, and it never will be. So we've seen that we're becoming a spiritual house, and we're built on Christ the cornerstone. Finally, we see what we are. We are God's special possession. Verses 9 and 10. We are God's special possession. Uh, Follow with me from verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What I find interesting in this passage is the tenses. Um, In verses 4 to 5, I think we're in the present present continuous tense with a focus on the future, where we're heading, what what we are being built into. But now we're just in the simple present tense. You are. I wonder whether perhaps uh, Peter, either we might be feeling a bit shocked, discouraged, unsettled, by his, um, by his words in verses 6 to 8, the starkness of the situation for those who choose not to believe, those who stumble over the rock of Christ. And so he jumps right back into the simple present tense and tells us what we are. Though many will reject Christ and reject us, his church, pouring down their scorn and their opposition, ostracizing us from their communities, Though the church will appear and may well be in earthly terms in decline, that does not change the reality of who we are. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. I'll have to leave you in your own time to um, to dig back into Exodus 19. A lot of these terms come from uh, just before God gives the law, the Ten Commandments to his people. Um, But just briefly, though we might be despised, though we might seem to be in decline, we are God's special possession. Though we are not now, all that we one day will be, we are already something truly incredible. And what we will be is greater than we can imagine. Four terms there. Uh, We are chosen people, picked out by God, each one of us, individually, personally, by name, for the creation of the world, to belong to him individually and to belong to him together. He's picked us. He's picked you. In the second term, we're a royal priesthood. Our lives have a purpose, a 
and the mean one. We have been saved to serve, not by offering up animals, but by offering up our lives, our actions, our words, our thoughts, our feelings. Not by killing lambs, but by killing sin. And we serve as a priesthood with the whole world watching. And we are a holy nation. We are set apart, as we were considering last week, as Tony was reminding us just now, set apart to be different. To be different like God is different. And to be different together. Though we come from every tribe and tongue and nothing in earthly terms may hold, um, uh, may hold us together, may we have in common. We are different together. And then that fourth one, we are God's special possession. We have a special possession, a keepsake, a gift, something precious to you. Think of that thing and know that that is what you are to God. A smile breaks out on his face when he thinks of you, just as it does on yours. When you find that thing, when you see that photo, when you remember that time, you are what God would carry out with him if his house were on fire special possession. And then in verse 10, then, the words that the ancient prophet Hosea was once given for his wayward and adulterous wife, though you left me, though you abandoned me, though you could not have cared less as you broke my heart and gave yourself heart and body to another man, I will say to you, you are my people. I will show you mercy, Hosea was told to say to his wife. And that is what God has now said to us, verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Why? Verse 9, that we might declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. That we might give up our lives to live in his holy house, better one day in his courts and a thousand days elsewhere, surrounded by our new family, our brothers and sisters. In this weak, frail, glorious thing called a church, where we will praise him and worship and live in his presence forever. We are not all, but we will one day be but we are already something truly incredible. The church may appear to be in decline. It may appear to be struggling, getting worse, getting smaller. Things may look like they are getting worse, not better. But rest assured that you are part of the greatest thing God is doing in the world at the moment. And we've only seen the beginning. Father, we repent of how we so often look at the church in worldly terms. We listen to what society says about the church and we believe it. And we fear and we doubt that you are in control, that you know what you are doing, that you are building something bigger and better. We thank you for Peter's encouraging words. Thank you that we are being built as your special possession into a spiritual house that honours you, built on the cornerstone of Christ. 
give us a greater sense of who we are, not just individually, but corporately, and help us to live with the wonderful promises you've given us and the purpose and meaning that we have as we are built by you into your house. Amen.